With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Jason Scorse, a professor of environmental studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies down in Monterey. Jason is an economist, uh, but I think of him as basically a coastal futurist. He's someone who thinks creatively about the ways that we've chosen to develop the coast and live there. And so I wanted to talk to him about how our relationship to the coast is going to have to change, specifically in the face of climate change. So we have never had a rational, scientific, healthy, just relationship with the oceans. It's been one extreme to the other. All, you know, throw all the poor people there or kick them out and put our house up to the last inch on the cliff. Jason runs the Center for the Blue Economy, which is a think tank that's trying to figure out how we find some kind of healthy, sustainable equilibrium with the ocean. So that could mean changing the ways we build homes on the beach. It could mean rethinking commercial fishing practices. It could mean returning large sections of coast to nature. We talk about a lot of fun stuff in this podcast. For instance, the idea that cities and towns on the coast need to start strategically retreating from the water's edge inland or risk massive financial losses. That can mean instituting some kind of government buyout program so that homeowners can afford to relocate. But we don't really know because nobody's really doing it. But it's something that towns are going to have to start thinking about sooner rather than later. So Jason and I, we cover that. We cover a lot more. As you'll hear, he's super knowledgeable, which is why I love talking to him. We'll get to our conversation in just one minute. But first, this brief message. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with director for the Center for the Blue Economy, Jason Scorse. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Great to be here. Yeah, how you doing? Doing great. So we're recording at your house, which I'm not going to give the location of it, <laughs> but showing up here made me wonder. The last time we saw each other, I think, was about six years ago. It was when I was working on a story about surfonomics and specifically research that you were working on that was going to show that the home prices in Santa Cruz are pegged directly to the proximity to good surf spots. So we were walking around and looking at homes, but you were actually at the time looking for a, a new house, right? Correct. And I, in fact, I bought this house just about then. It's about a little over six years old. Oh, interesting. And so if you wouldn't mind real quick, kind of recapping, what'd you find in your research into the real estate market in Santa Cruz. Sure, sure. So what we found was a pretty strong correlation between 
beach homes that were near really good surf breaks and about you know on average about a hundred thousand dollar premium for those homes we're pretty confident about those results uh, again it was the first paper to look at that mm-hmm. it was about a hundred grand you know to be near a nice surf break um you know where you can walk out the door and go surfing what interested me about the research that you did is that you found that it wasn't just being nice it wasn't just being near a nice beach it was being near surfing specifically and quality surfing specifically if the research had just shown like oh if you're near the beach hey if your house has a nice view like it'll be worth more that's pretty self-explanatory but this actually looked at being near a surf break because we were you were looking at like pleasure point specifically there's not really a beach there you don't really hang out at pleasure point and so that was what I thought was was fascinating about that. Yeah. yeah, correct. So, you know, you have to find pretty unique conditions to do a study like this because, like you said, you know, we're trying to tease out just the contribution of surfing. Yeah. So Pleasure Point was perfect because, like you said, it's not a beach that people hang out on and do anything. You know, there is a little walkway there for walking, which is nice. People with their dogs and stuff. But in terms of the beach, it's almost non-existent. There's no volleyball. There's no sun tanning. <laughs> there's no swimming. It's really a surf break and nothing else. And then we have beaches close by that are the exact opposite, that are really big, wide, open, nice, kind of hanging out beach, but no appreciable surf. You know, maybe on a big day, there's a couple breaks, but by and large, they're pretty flat all the time. And so that was, that contrast is what allowed us to do the comparison and and get something meaningful statistically. Yeah, that was great. So, and then kind of bring me up to speed. What have you been working on in the interim here? Sure, sure. So most of my work has been with the Center for the Blue Economy, which when we last spoke was only, you know, it was really in its infancy. It was in the first couple of years. We're mm-hmm. just getting going. And so we've really ramped up. We've hired some research staff. We've started an international journal. We've got, you know, now a number of, of cohorts of students that have kind of gone through. And the two main research projects of the center are helping governments around the world kind of develop ocean economic accounting systems, which is obviously a pretty niche and kind of, uh, you know, uh, not your, your your typical type of economic analysis, but it's trying to look at the, the contribution of ocean resources to economic health. And in doing that, we're also trying to define the blue economy. The, the World Bank defines the blue economy as kind of the sustainable use of ocean and coastal resources. Then, of course, the follow-up question is, what is sustainable? And that's what we're really trying to operationalize. To make it simple, you know, we want to be able to tell governments, tell, you know, finance ministers, you know, offshore oil, unsustainable, offshore wind, sustainable. Mm-hmm. Offshore fin fish, pens, unsustainable. Offshore plant-based aquaculture, sustainable. You know, onshore uh, natural living infrastructure for climate protection, sustainable. Seawalls, not, right? So we're trying to really, and again, and we probably will never get to that level of specificity across the board because you know the, the, the coastal environments are just too varied around the world. But just some general principles to really kind of carve out what the blue economy looks like, how to measure it. So that's kind of the meta part one. And then we're really doing a lot of projects on climate adaptation, kind of the economics of how we adapt to climate change because you know the one of the big buzzwords right now is climate resilience and that's kind of the new the evolution and and there's some there's some strength to that term and that word and it's probably a more affirmative word but it also i think masks a lot because we're really not going to be able to keep what we currently have right so resilience i think 
kind of portrays a little bit more of status quo than is probably likely to, to, to occur. Whereas adaptation, I think, is probably the more accurate term of, because we're going to have to move around a lot and we're going to have to do things very differently. And so there's a lot, obviously, a lot of economic questions with that, right? When, when cities and towns and states are making decisions now, they're citing a new road, they're putting a sewage treatment plant, a new development project. These things are supposed to last 50, 100 years. And so they're their longevity is entering into some pretty uncertain space in terms of climate change, especially in low-lying areas. Yeah. And so we're really trying to help with kind of the economics of that decision-making. I want to ask you about some of your work at the center, um, but since you touched on it right then, that's really what is interesting. One of the things that's interesting to me these days when I'm thinking about coastal issues in California, the California coast is this iconic feature of the country. And the way that we people who live here have to conceive of how we occupy that space and what we do there, how we develop it, all has to change. And that's happening at this point right now where a bunch of these coastal towns are creating their 30-year plans. And so I'm reading about different pieces of these, and it's interesting to read just kind of how each area is dealing with this kind of on a psychological level almost, because what everything points to is uh, you can have you can build seawalls and jetties and all of these things that are designed to kind of shore up the coast and keep it from being eroded and keep sea level rise from affecting certain properties. But really, at the end of the day, it sounds like the big decision that's going to have to be made for these places is managed retreat is the term I keep seeing, which is basically we're just going to have to start moving inland. Like we just can't build on the bluffs with the views anymore. We got to move away. Have you talk to anybody about like have you have you had experience with local municipalities or decision makers in these areas what are they what are they thinking what are they saying yeah so we we have and in fact we're working with a lot of the the local municipalities that are dealing with this exact issue and to be honest as progressive as california is this is one area where we are still really behind the curve people the kind of the private property ethic of this is my piece and I'm not giving it up under any circumstances is still very strong and people are very stubborn. And I, again, I do say that with precisely it's a because it's stubbornness in the face of of physics and science that is, you know, doesn't care whether you believe it or not. Yeah. Right. And doesn't care about your feelings. Uh, and. There's a lot of resistance. There's city councils that are being voted out because they mention the word manage retreat yeah. in a document and real risk aversion to even using this language. People are trying to come up with new language. So it's incredibly contentious, incredibly difficult. And, and maybe I'll, I'll kind of take a, a meta angle here for a second. And, and, and this is some of the stuff that, that I'm working on now too, which is if you think about it in US history, obviously we're a relatively young country. And we've never had a healthy relationship with the oceans. We've had two pendulum swings. So the first was, and most people don't realize this, is that in, in the beginning of the nation's history, the poor people all lived at the coast. Mm -hmm. Rich people thought the coast was, you know, disgusting. It was yeah, smelly. Yeah. It was <laughs> variable. It was where all the kind of fish and seaweed and bugs and, and it was kind of chaotic. And so they lived up in the hills away from floods where they could look out over everything. And it was the immigrants and the slaves and the poor people who lived on the coast. 
And so then, you know, in basically the end of the 19th, early 20th century, that changed. There's a lot of reasons for that. But then wealthy, particularly wealthy whites, got very interested in the coast. And there's huge history about incredible injustice done to basically forcibly remove these people. There's still communities up and down the coast that are, have the scars of that from over 100 years ago. Even here in progressive Santa Cruz, Monterey, Chinese communities were just forcibly removed. There's, uh, from what I hear is there's still um, Asian communities in San Jose whose, you know, whose people may refuse to even visit Monterey and, San, and Santa Cruz because of the harsh memories of their ancestors being violently removed, right? So then what did we do? We moved all the way up to the edge. So once we got it, we said, we want to be right at the edge and put our house right there on the dunes, destroy all the wetlands, destroy the marshes, all that nasty stuff with the bugs, and put the house right up there. So that's the history of U.S. coastal policy for you know, hundreds of years. So we have never had a rational, scientific, healthy, just relationship with the oceans. It's been one extreme to the other. All, you know, throw all the poor people there or kick them out and put our house up to the last inch on the cliff. And so the, the, the reason I mention this is because this is a big paradigm shift, right? We, we really don't understand what the coasts are and we don't appreciate what we've done to them and we don't appreciate what's gonna need to happen. The, the upside to this is it's a big opportunity. It's an opportunity to kind of finally do it right. And if we do it right, I can envision a pretty prosperous coastal environment going forward. So it doesn't have to just be a negative, but I don't think we're there yet. It's still viewed as kind of negative and cost, and I'm not going to move my house because this is where my grandma lived or whatever. Yeah. And we haven't really evolved into that new way of thinking, which is kind of part, of part of the work we're trying to do. So before we get into the new way of thinking or the things that you'd like to see, what is a common rationale that you are hearing for why we shouldn't move or we shouldn't think about this or we shouldn't deal with this right now? Yeah, so I mean, I think... Again, I use the word stubbornness purposely because I think it's really just a stubborn insistence that we, we, you know, we need to do whatever it takes to protect our, you know, our current property. Hmm. That you know, with enough riprap, enough seawall, you know, enough reinforcements, we can figure it out. And you know, that's what Americans do. We're tough. We're strong. We stand up. We protect what's ours. So really, there aren't very many good rationales. So that is the one we hear the most. Uh, I don't think it's particularly persuasive, uh, but that's that seems to be the psychology it's coming from. And let me be also clear, like I get it to some degree, right? Nobody wants to be told that their property is you know permanently at risk and that they have to move. And a lot of these people have invested a lot and, and many of them are multi-generational. So again, I'm not entirely unsympathetic to the view but it, you know, it's not constructive though to just insist, 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 and and while the science gets worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So, what would you like to see? What do you think we should be doing? Because uh, you've talked about private homes that are on the coast, but in some of the areas, like you're drawing lines around like schools and churches and businesses, and it's not just like rich people's homes right on the bluffs. It's kind of entire pieces of infrastructure for these communities that are going to have to be relocated or something is going to have to be changed. Uh, so what do you th what would you like to see yeah, going forward? Yeah. How do we kind of address that? Yeah, so obviously, you know, with the caveat to start here, there's no kind of one size fits all or anything right. like that. But in terms of some general principles, I'd say the first thing is we should take the opportunity 
for managed retreat to restore the, the natural infrastructure of the coastline. So this means putting back, restoring, you know, seagrass, wetlands, you know, in some areas of the country, mangroves, uh, dune systems. And A, that can be produce a lot of really good jobs. So I just want to say there's going to be a whole new industry, you know, uh, being given birth here for kind of ecological restoration on a coastal zone. So mm -hmm. this is going to take everything from PhD scientists to, to manual laborers to, you know, and then I'd say we want to build in some new economic opportunity in there, right? So you want to start thinking about new waterfront properties, new kind of living and working waterfronts, new models for how people interact with the coast. So maybe all the infrastructure and the parking lots aren't right up to the edge of the beach. We restore all that, we move everything back, but then we can put in, you know, really detailed trail systems and park systems and bike lanes and, and make the, the coastal, this new really restored coastal infrastructure a, a much more integrated part of the community. It's not just, you know, one little parking lot or one rich neighborhood or something like that. So that would be one, I'd say that's probably, the, the, the first thing is restoring the, cult, the coastal ecology. The second I would say is, is the justice aspect, right? Is that, yeah. you know, environmental justice finally is getting its due in the sense that people realize that there's a lot of inequities and unfairness going on with the way pollution is distributed, the way with environmental impacts are distributed. And I think that in the coastal zones, we're gonna see this as well. And you're right to point out that it's not just rich people that live on the coast. There's all kinds of public infrastructure and, and middle-class homes, et cetera. And so I think people whose homes have to be uh, you know, destroyed or moved, some levels of compensation, some levels of buyouts, maybe they get preference for new land, maybe they get a bigger lot size, maybe they get some tax breaks because that's put into some kind of conservation easement. So I'd say, you know, more creative financial instruments to make it fair. Now, when I say fair, that doesn't mean everybody is going to be 100% whole, right? So yeah. people whose properties are most at risk are probably going to have some negative economic consequence, but it doesn't have to be devastating, right? And I think people, if we do this right and, and in a deliberative fashion, people can come out feeling like they were treated well and that this overall the community is better off, even if, you know, they, you know, some of their property had to kind of be sacrificed in this transition period. Hmm. So you'd like to see some kind of real cohesive, comprehensive coastal management plan that kind of takes all of these different interests into account. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, some communities are really starting to do this or at least having those initial conversations. I don't think there's any that have, have a fully flushed out plan that's kind of on paper. But, you know, this we're in the early stages here, even if maybe the time horizon isn't that long, we still are, you know, just kind of getting going here. And, and I'm confident... If we put it this way, if we can't do it in California, we're not going to be able to do it anywhere. Right. So we really have to be kind of models and, 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 and leaders in this field like we are in, in many others. Yeah. One thing you mentioned that I wanted to ask you, but I wanted to follow up on, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but I think about a year ago, the California Coastal Commission approved an environmental justice policy, I think is what they called it. And essentially it was kind of, from what I gather, it's sort of a public announcement that the Coastal Commission is gonna start taking into account access needs for low-income people, people of color, people who uh, have by and large kind of been overlooked or excluded from the coast, from accessing the coast. Because as we know, it's like it's not like there are a bunch of 
cheap motels lining the California coast. Like it's big, fancy hotels, it's wealthy developments. And a lot of those, uh, the people, you know, the private property holders uh, are doing everything that they can to kind of carve out their section of the coast, even though it's supposed to be open to the public and keep people out of it. So I'm just curious if you can talk about that a little bit, what you see as being maybe the opportunity that we have right now to open the coast in a new way. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that, that Coastal Commission kind of, um, you know, ordinance is that it really this is supposed to have been part of the Coastal Commission's mandate for right. a long time. Right. So it's kind of almost like they were it's just symbolic. Of, I yeah. Think. Restipulating or yeah. maybe maybe more forcefully articulating what's something that's really been part of their mandate. But that's not necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think it's I think there it's it's a it's a good thing to point out. And you know, the Coastal Commission, I'll give them credit that they really have done a lot to to fight these you know these billionaires who block public access, and and they usually win, right? And a lot of you know you can go to other parts of the country, go up in New England where there's a lot of private beaches where you can drive for a long time without access. And then you drive down California highways and it's, you know, every couple miles there's a big open public beach for free and really appreciate that they have done a pretty good job. So yeah. so overall, you know, I, I, I just think they're, they were probably just planting their flag a little. They're seeing where the wind's blowing, that environmental justice is a big deal. Yeah. And just kind of re-articulating something that I think they've been reasonably adept at for, for, for a long time. Yeah. So what do you think prospective home buyers on the coast should be thinking about right now? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, I mean, you know, if we're only talking California, that's one thing, but I'd say there's a lot of parts of the United States where I would just say, do not buy anything. Yeah. Right. Like I would never buy any property in Miami. I can tell you, I can say this right. with hundred percent confidence. People in Florida are going to lose tens of billions of dollars period done another big hurricane or two and it's that market's going to collapse and there's a lot of political ramifications of that that will fall into place um because you know there's a high likelihood actually that florida will state of florida will go bankrupt under those scenarios that but that being said you know california is a lot different the first thing i would just say is i don't think anyone should be right up to the edge of the water mm -hmm. right that's just not a sensible thing to do if you're if in 2019 you're building property right at the edge of the water a ecologically that's not a good thing to do and b even if it's well fortified and even if it's on a cliff i just think you're putting yourself at big financial risk and that's what you're talking about is erosion essentially and on the lower lying level, lower lying areas, sea level rise. And yeah, and then of course they combine, right? And, yeah. and they can. But you know, a lot of the, the properties that are that are most at risk are, are high up on cliffs, you know. Yeah. And uh, and but the, you know they're eroding and then falling apart. And again, when you're you know you're you're recessed ten feet back from the edge of the cliff, it's just a matter of time before you're going to be impacted. And, and you know. I obviously could not afford on my professor's salary <laughs> to buy my house right on the cliff, but even in, in that case, I wouldn't have. And on this property that I purchased is up on a hill, and I am very far away from you know <laughs> any imminent climate change impacts. I'm sure the next ice age or whatever, I'll, you know, my ancestors will, will have to figure something out. So your work for the center of the blue economy is essentially promoting this idea of the blue economy, and then within that larger national framework of the Green New Deal. And you were talking, you touched on that earlier, um, but what does that actually look like? How can we sort of integrate or incorporate these principles into this broader kind of national policy framework? Yeah, well, 
It's funny you say that because um, we're, we're working. That's my main project for the next year, actually. So we have what's called uh, the Ocean Climate Action Plan is our, our project title. And we are actually convening leaders in California in October to kind of begin this work of really outlining priorities for integrating kind of ocean and coastal issues into a, a national framework. So this work we're doing, our hope is, is to have something by spring of next year. And we have an article I can send you and you can link to it if you want, you know, for, you, for your listeners on kind of the eight principles that we're starting out to look at. So it's everything from coastal infrastructure to disaster response to offshore renewable power to uh, plant-based aquaculture development. We're really far behind the rest of the world in that. And that's some of the most sustainable food supplies and climate resilient food supplies. So it's a pretty broad, comprehensive package. Our hope is, is to get a consensus, a consensus kind of document put together that's pretty well fleshed out, that has all the leaders of the ocean community in the United States backing it, or at least the majority, and then to bring them to the, the presidential candidates. We'll, we'll bring them to the Trump administration, too. Um, we'd be, it would be great if, uh, if they took them on as well. We're, we're happy for anyone to do that. And so this is a kind of a, a to be determined here. Hmm. We have, I think, the basic principles of the framework. There's also some great legislation that's already been introduced. Again, it's not going anywhere in, in the Senate under, under McConnell. Uh, but, you know, Kamala Harris and I think Ed Markey, they have a Living Shorelines Act that they've introduced in the Senate. So there's little pieces of it. What we're trying to do is kind of put it all together. And then in the hopes that leadership changes, or the current leadership becomes enlightened, that then maybe in 2021, some of this will actually um, you know, um, come into effect. Yeah. One of those principles, or an idea in one of those principles that I read about, I wanted to ask you about. Um, you mentioned natural coastal infrastructure and then living shorelines. I just wanted to ask, what are those and what role do they play? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, those in some ways are kind of the synonymous here. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, there's a lot of science showing, and we've actually done some of this work as well, that, you know, a dune, a marshland, an oyster reef will give better coastal protection than a seawall hmm. or, you know, a kind of hardened gray infrastructure. And but then, of course, it comes with all the environmental benefits as well, because it's habitat for, for creatures and fish and birds and, and, and invertebrates. And so... The, 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 the thing that's really impediment right now is not necessarily the economics. People say, oh, well, that must be so much more expensive. It actually turns out that it's not in most areas, but there's just not very good understanding of it. There's not a lot. There aren't engineering firms, you know, that can give you the deep specs that they can with a seawall. Hmm. And so a lot of the work here is just kind of building the kind of scientific and infrastructure so that you're a homeowner or you're a developer or you're a city that's building, you know, a library or a school or something in a, in a low-lying area. And you can go and say, hey, I want to protect this with living, you know, shoreline, living infrastructure. We don't want to do the, the gray, gray stuff. And there be specs ready that are developed with costs and maintenance and all that, that they can compare against the alternatives and say, oh, wow, that's cheaper. Of course, I want to go with that. And then obviously building in some of the maybe the tourism or, uh, you know, the other kind of recreational opportunities around that. And then that would be kind of an additional benefit. Are there any specific projects or specific towns or municipalities along the coast that you think are success stories, case studies that you would point to, uh, areas that are doing it right, essentially? 
the the case studies I know the best are not in California. Hmm. Um, they're more in kind of the southeast, kind of the Gulf Coast areas. And in some ways, it's because they've been suffered the most damage, so mm-hmm. they're being the most proactive and kind of in trying to, to solve that. California, uh, nothing comes to mind of, of a municipality that is really doing it well yet. Again, I think you know Santa Cruz here, Monterey, uh, Pacific Grove, um, also Pacifica up in San Francisco are starting to think along these lines. Uh, so those are probably where I would assume the first iterations of, of this might come from. And then I know you're a vegan and that kind of plant-based plant-based lifestyle mm-hmm. I know is kind of at the at the core of some of your thinking about these mm-hmm. projects yeah. um, and this broader theory. Can yeah. you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this is this is obviously more of a personal uh, position. I, you know, I don't... Um, you know the the center isn't you know taking any position on this, but you know I I think you know let let's take one of our you know anyone who's in ocean conservation let's take Sylvia Earle, right? Everybody knows her. Mm-hmm. Listen to what Sylvia Earle says. She says what I what I say, which is don't eat seafood. That she does not believe that there is sustainable industrial seafood. She doesn't believe it. And she makes a deeper case. If you listen to her, I really recommend listening to the TED interview with her that came out a couple months ago. She makes a pretty detailed ethical case that these sea creatures are quite sentient and individual. You know, we think of fishing, it's just big, huge nets and millions of kind of all seemingly this identical fish kind of wriggling around and suffocating as we take them out of the water. And she's had, you know, 60 years of of diving with these sea creatures and, and being spending weeks at a time with individual fish underwater and seeing unique personalities. And so she does a great job of, of kind of the ethics that these are not just kind of the, the bugs of the sea, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that the, the creatures that, we, that we're eating here are pretty sophisticated. And, and, and so my, my thing, you know, my, my final point here is if you really, really care about the marine environment, it's it's really hard to square that with a support for commercial fishing. Mm-hmm. I just I just have to say that. Fortunately, on an affirmative note, there are people. There's a couple companies that I'd like to mention. So there's Ocean Hugger Foods. There's Good Catch Foods. There's uh, Finless Fish, which is a new company that doesn't have any products yet, but which is building, uh, developing uh, cell based. So it will be actually be real fish, but just grown cell based, not mm. in a not not fish in the sea and and then of course you have the impossible burger and the beyond burger and you got a million products out there and so you can kind of have your cake and eat it too mm-hmm. you don't you know i think we you know with 10 billion people on the planet i just don't think we can eat wild seafood at the rates where we're eating it and uh and have anything left and it gets just math you know it's just the math so just to recap don't eat fish don't live by the ocean and don't get used to the status quo of having these, having well, these places to well, well, first of all, yeah, you're, you're making it, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, no, you, so I'll, I'm going to reframe that in a positive way. Right? No, no. So, I, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So, so the first thing is I want to say I'm not, I, I, these are recommendations. I, you know, everyone is free to do as they please. It's just, you know, this is my, my scientific opinion here. But in terms of absolutely live near the the ocean but just not right on top of the ocean mm-hmm. right so i live you know a mile away from the ocean i think probably most places in the u.s you know a mile in 
you know, you can take a nice walk, stroll down to the beach. Yeah. I can still hear the waves crashing in the winter. So you can live near the beach, just not on the beach, right? And then in terms of what not to eat, I really do want to reframe that, which is I think people should experiment with and start exploring plant-based alternatives uh, or some of the cell-based alternatives when they come out, like the finless fish. Uh, try some of the, you know, those products. And, and I think if, as you find products you like, then you will naturally reduce consumption. I'm really, I write, I, I like the affirmative framing much more than telling people what not to do because right. that's what veganism and plant-based diets have been always, that's been the kind of Achilles heel, that it's a kind of a, a deprivation yeah. and you're telling me what not to do. Yeah. And these days, again, you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, go to, go to Whole Foods or any kind of store and look at all the millions of plant-based milks and ice creams and sausages and burgers and good catch has plant-based crab cakes and all kinds of, you know, fish filet kind of products that taste amazing. And you put a little tartar sauce on that, you know, have a couple beers. And to be honest, you're not really <laughs> going to miss the crab cakes. You're not going to miss the calamari. So we're really lucky that we live in a technological age and in an age of abundance, whereas, you know, Americans, you know, we can kind of have it all. And so I, I really, I don't want to leave on a kind of a, a deprivation no, that's, mindset. That's a way better note to end yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Thanks very much for the time, Jason. It was good talking to you. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much again to Jason for making time to come on the podcast. For more information on his work, check out the Center for the Blue Economy at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. You can find him online at middlebury.edu. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. See you next time. <laughs>